Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee. Today, our guest is Elena Gracheva, an assistant professor of molecular and cellular physiology at the Yale University School of Medicine. In this episode, we will talk about working with bats, snakes, and squirrels, oh my, and also how thermoregulation studies might help us with organ transplants. All this and more coming up. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Gracheva. Hello, it's my pleasure. So where did you grow up and when did you decide you wanted to become a scientist? I grew up in Moscow, in Russia. Uh, my parents, they are physicists and my mother, she's an engineer. And from my childhood, I was exposed to um, science. I remember that I was constantly solving problems on physics and mathematics with my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I decided instead of going to physics, although I had this idea, I decided to go into biology. In 1996, I entered in Moscow State University. I graduated with a master's degree in 2001 mm-hmm. uh, with major in biochemistry. Then I moved to graduate school in 2002, and I became a graduate student in the University of Illinois, Chicago, Mm -hmm. and I was working on synaptic transmission in C. elegans. So you were in Janet Richmond's lab there in Chicago, and you were studying a protein called Thomasin um, and its effect on synaptic vesicle priming and release. Um, and specifically, you found that this molecule inhibits vesicle priming and uh, neuron transmitter release. So can you tell us a little bit more about this research and why you wanted to study this particular molecule? When I joined Janet's lab, I was not planning to work on Thomasin, which is founded uh, in a screen. And then we became interested in it because we, uh, it has some phenotype animals that were very hyperactive. Mm-hmm. when you look at them. Then Jan- Janet recorded from near a muscular junction and we saw some uh, interesting electrophysiological phenotype and we decided to pursue, to, to, to work on, on this more further. And this became my graduate project. And as a result, we published paper and then I actually work not only on tamosin, I work on uh, CAPS protein, which is responsible for release of large dense core vesicles. I worked on protein called ANC13, ANC18. These two proteins are responsible for uh, synaptic transmission as well. Basically, uh, I can tell that I was working on synaptic transmission at the C. elegans neuromuscular junction. Mm-hmm. Maybe for some listeners, it might be surprising that this is an inhibitor of a transmitter release. And so were you surprised at the time that there would be an inhibitor of transmitter release, or would you mostly expect to see positive regulators of, of this kind of transmission? Uh, when you get rid of the motion, you see that animals are not uncoordinated. They're actually more hyperactive. And mm-hmm. this gave us an idea that the motion actually may act as an inhibitor rather than positive regulator of release. And then when once we checked electrophysiological phenotype, we found that it's actually consistent with behavior. So they have exuberant synaptic vesicle release in, uh, animals, silicons, uh, in the absence of the motion. So it was not surprising in the sense that we saw that animals, they were uh, hyperactive. And usually, if you're talking about positive regulator of release, you would expect that animals will have an ANC phenotype, which stands for uncoordinated phenotype and C. elegans. Right. I see. All right. So after you uh, finished your PhD, you came to UCSF where you joined uh, David Julius's lab. And so during your graduate work, you're working mostly in C. elegans, which is a very well-loved genetic organism. But you moved on to work on some much rarer and what seemed to me kind of frightening <laughs> models, including the snake and the vampire bat. And I just wanted to read this quote from one of your papers where you say, we chose pythons as convenient, that is non-venomous, pit-bearing species for functional studies. So um, how did you come to work on these animals? And maybe even more interestingly, 
how did you actually deal with these animals on a day-to-day basis? David's lab is working on sensory physiology and one of the fascinating questions in sensory physiology is how animals perceive different stimuli and snakes infrared sensing snakes such as rattlesnakes vampire bats pythons and amazon triboa they perceive prey within a distance using infrared sensors and it has been known for decades that biology of these animals but no one knows about the molecular basis uh, of this sensitivity and when i joined david's lab he, he was telling me about this phenomenon and of course i read about this before but i never thought about working on this project he was like why why don't we move uh, on this project and see how it goes and i found it's interesting and i started to work on on it and we found uh, infrared sensor as actually this molecule is present in our organism but because of this molecule we can feel wasabi mustard oil and different noxious uh, chemicals whereas rattlesnakes from amazon triboa and pythons they use this molecule to perceive to to detect prey within a distance without any visual clue or olfactory clue are these animals that are usually used in the lab so i i would call it that this this un, uh, unconventional animal models mm-hmm. and uh when i just started this project i performed differential transcriptomics together with nick angolia from jonathan weissman lab uh, on rattlesnakes which is they are king among in infrared sensor sensing animals and I went to Kingsville to natural toxin research center to obtain material in this natural toxin research center they have a lot of different snakes and they have them for venom they allowed us to use several animals for our studies and that was initial the beginning of this project but then I decided to look at different animals with uh, infrared sensations such as Amazon triboa and pythons so evolutionary rattlesnakes pythons and boas, they from completely different clades of the snakes. Mm-hmm. So that's why we thought, okay, let's check if pythons and boas, they use the same molecular strategy or they adapted different molecular strategy uh, in order to feel prey within a distance. So these, some of these are snakes that maybe, you know, have prey and some of them maybe don't um, actually hunt or... Yeah. So yeah, we, 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 yeah, we decided to check different snakes with infrared uh, sensation. They... They use the same molecular basis. Mm-hmm. And from this point, I came to David and I asked him if we can get snakes in the lab. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what was his reaction? He was saying, Elena, forget about rattlesnakes in the lab. <laughs> I can think about pythons and boas. And I'm very grateful that he allowed me to introduce this animal model in his lab. So we were getting pythons and boas in the lab and I was performing experiments on them on a regular base like you're doing on mice we're doing this i was doing the same with snakes did you actually keep them like in the lab or did you keep them downstairs in a special facility or no we we were just getting them from vendors I and see. I w- yeah i was using them at the experiments right away but i was I handling uh, actual snakes oh wow that still sounds scary to me that, that, <laughs> that was <laughs> that was a great experience you know then yeah. um after walking with snakes you can walk on any animal any <laughs> because there's nothing you're scared of now right yeah exactly now um as you said you were you were studying infrared in these animals so um can you first just explain for those that maybe don't know what infrared detection is um and then talk a little bit about what exactly you found so infrared is basically heat right mm-hmm. it's far red and uh, it starts from uh, 1.5 microns of the wavelength so that's the near infrared mid infrared is 3 micron and higher than that is far infrared so we all emit heat right and we can feel infrared by our hand you can fit a hot cup with a coffee by your hand within 
like several centimeters, right? Mm -hmm. And we're doing it because we have temperature sensors in our nerve endings. But snakes, they have special organs on their face that they use to feel warm-blooded prey, basically heat that prey is emitted. And they're using this unique structures called pit organs that are highly innervated by trigeminal nerve fibers. Mm -hmm. And within these trigeminal nerve fibers, there is they express very highly expressed molecule TRPA1. That's a member of trip channel family because of these trip channels, we can feel heat, cold, and this heat and cold sensors, they were discovered in David Julius lab back in 2001. And it turns to be that uh, TRPA1 uh, that we are using to feel wasabi or mustard oil or different noxious chemicals, snake adapted to feel infrared sensation. So in, in their case, TRPA1 is a heat sensor. And that heat sensor is the most heat sensitive molecule so far identified in vertebrates. So our heat sensors at 40, 42 degrees, whereas rattlesnakes, their TRP1 is activated at 25, 28 degrees Celsius. And so, so you're saying that these are also in humans, they're probably on our tongue, we're using them as taste receptors, and they've been adapted in other species for other uses. And so can you tell us maybe what are some of the differences in these molecules that allow them to have these different sensitivities that are giving these different, you know, functionalities and these different thresholds for sensing heat? TRP1, the wasabi receptor, it's expressed in trigeminal fibers, not in the test buds, but it's, it's in trigeminal fibers that also innervate tongue. But we also can feel noxious chemicals, mm-hmm. like if you put, for example, wasabi, very high concentration on your skin, it will cause irritation. And because of TRP1, you start to feel it. Snake TRP1 channel is also wasabi sensitive, but it's less wasabi sensitive than heat sensitive. Probably because snakes they don't want to create noise from different modality. It's a very interesting question about what the temperature module or if the temperature module exists within a temperature sensitive ion channel. So this area is um, growing and there are a lot of controversial topics on which particular region of ion channel is responsible for heat and cold sensitivity and there are multiple labs including this moment my lab and also lab David Julius, Ardem Potaputin, people all over the world are trying to address this question and understand what you need in order to obtain heat or cold sensitivity. So we're talking structurally inside the molecule. Yes. And recently, David solved the first structure of TRPV1, which is a heat sensor that he identified together with Michael Katerina by CryEM. And that was a breakthrough. That was the first deep channel structure so far solved. And hopefully we will obtain a lot of information from it about sensitivity as well as chemical sensitivity. Is, is it particularly hard to uh, find the structures of these molecules? Yeah, so it's it's very hard to solve the structure. It was solved by cryem, not by uh, X-ray crystallography, but with very high resolution. What's the difference there between the cryem and the and the X-ray crystallography? With cryem, you basically can visualize molecule instantaneously freeze it, and you look under the microscope mm-hmm. at this molecule and then you're you're collecting different images of the same molecule in different configurations and then using special computer program you do multiple iterations with this molecule and see what the conformation of the protein that was a breakthrough in structural field as well as in a trip channel field he published last year two nature papers when they solved uh, structure of trpv1 ion channel
I see. And so you also studied these trip channels in bats as well as snakes. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you found there in contrast to snakes? So these are also infrared sensing animals? Yes, there are three different types of vampire bats and they all use infrared sensation to find the hot spots, blood vessels on the skin of the warm-blooded animals. And uh, that was a collaboration with Julio Cardera Morales. He was a postdoc in David Julius lab. Now he has his own lab. So he, his friends uh, helped us to obtain tissues from vampire bats. I don't know a cloned TRPV1 and I found that they modify, instead of modifying not heat sensitive ion channel in case of uh, snakes, vampire bats, they modified already existing heat sensitive ion channel but they just tuned temperature threshold to the extreme. In our body, this temperature is activated higher than 42 degrees. Whereas vampire bats, they modify TRPV1 channel and they have modified threshold and this channel is activated at 28 degrees Celsius, which is huge difference, temperature difference, 28 versus 42. And they use this ion channel to feel heat that is emitted by warm-blooded animals. And so the difference between humans and snakes and then snakes bats, it's all the same gene in all of these animals, but the modification, what, where does it happen at the level of transcript? In case of vampire bats, they modify TRPV1 and it seems like it's a C-terminus that they truncated and after this truncation, channel becomes very heat sensitive. In case of TRPE1, snakes versus human, we think that the part of this biophysical properties, uh, they come from anchoring repeats, which is uh, which are localized within a huge N-terminus of TRPE1. Mm-hmm. So it's a, I think it's a different strategy for different ion channels, but at this moment it's hard to tell. We need more information, structural information as well as biophysical information of these channels. Yeah, it seems like a very uh, productive way to look at things is by comparing these species because the differences are so stark and also very functionally relevant. That's true. So maybe we could talk about what you're doing now. So in 2012, you actually started your own lab at Yale, where you are now, um, and you're studying not necessarily uh, this infrared sensation, but now thermal regulation, also using unique model systems. So for example, the 13-lined ground squirrel, which I've never heard of before, um, (laughs) and the Syrian hamster. So first of all, how did you get into thermal regulation? Is it necessarily related to what you were doing before in your postdoc? So we also, my lab is working on two different aspects. So first is sensory physiology as well. So we're trying to understand how we perceive heat, cold, and we use these animal models to understand these processes as well. And we're also using these animal models such as uh, 13-line ground squirrels as well as Syrian hamsters to understand the molecular basis of thermoregulation. So why are we using uh, Syrian hamsters and 13-line ground squirrels? Because both of the st- uh, species, they hibernate. Mm-hmm. And during hibernation, they reduce their core body temperature from 38 degrees Celsius to 4 degrees Celsius, despite that they're warm-blooded animals. They reduce the metabolic rate by 95%, but they still can generate and propagate action potential of be- being at 4 degrees Celsius. If you put me in a cold room for a long period, I will start to develop neuropathic pain and feel very unpleasant sensation. In their cases, they don't care when we put them at 4 degrees Celsius and actually they feel very comfortable when they hibernate to stay at 4 degrees. And they stay for this, in case of squirrels, they stay in hibernation 
up to eight, nine months. So we can push it in captivity for such a long time. Mm -hmm. During this time, they don't urinate, they don't defecate, they don't eat, they don't drink, they just hibernate. And we're trying to understand why they don't develop neuropathic pain by cold, for example, why they cannot feel painful cold, how they regulate their core body temperature, how they can go so flexibly from 38 degrees Celsius to 4 degrees C, and how they can go back so flexibly, what's happening at the level of preoptic area of hypothalamus, the remote regulatory unit of hypothalamus. We're comparing two different animal models, such as Syrian hamsters and 13 lion ground squirrels, because ground squirrels they can go for up to nine months in for hibernation whereas mm -hmm. syrian hamsters they have the same phenotype but they don't like to stay more than three weeks and we're comparing molecular pathways that are responsible for thermoregulation and temperature sensitivity in these two different species and trying to understand if these two animals they adapt the same molecular pathway or they adapt different molecular pathway to obtain the same phenotype or it's a fusion of the pathways in some cases mm -hmm. it's different in some cases it's the same and this will give us an answer about molecular evolution of mammalian hibernation sounds really interesting and so this new research is probably going to be spanning a lot of different systems so before you were looking more peripherally at these channels that are basically sensory channels but you might be looking at the same thing with the neuropathic pain but it seems like you're also going to be looking in much more central systems too yes we pioneering area of somatic sensation from a different perspective by looking at the unique animals such as hibernating animals. We already performed differential transcriptomics for multiple states during hibernation as well as active state and this gave us a lot of information about the changes that these animals has to undergo in order to protect themselves from cold. You've also had to establish a colony of these ground squirrels. I guess hamsters are a model system that has been used somewhat in the lab before. So at this moment, we have the biggest colony in the United States. We have 200 squirrels. squirrels. And it's kind of like lifetime experience when you go to the room with yeah. squirrels. Yeah, so we have the biggest colony. We have a special animal facility, which is adjacent to my lab with the temperature control. It, it looks like pressurized cabin temperature control, light control. We have red light there. Animals cannot see red light. We can security control and stuff like this. So, yeah. And we call this facility Hibernaculum. <laughs> That's great. And you're, you're sharing this facility. So you have a collaborator, I noticed. Slav, I cannot say his last Slav, name. Slav Bagrianzov. Okay. So Slav Bagrianzov is my collaborator, but at mm -hmm. the same time, he's my husband. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And his lab is working on mechanosensitivity, but we're collaborating on molecular, on biophysics of ion channel. He has a lot of experience to work with biophysics of ion channels of different nature, such as heat and mechanosensors. And we're obtaining expertise from his lab mm -hmm. when we're working on biophysical questions. Sounds great. And one last thing I did want to ask about is that I heard you're actually applying your research on thermal, or this new research on thermal regulation to tissue transplantation, which is a big problem in medically. And and at first glance, I don't actually see the connection, but uh, the potential seems very enticing. So could you actually tell us how, how this applies to your research? Uh, there are multiple publications on this topic, and hibernation has a lot of applications. One of them is tissue transplantation. So if you take kidney or liver from hibernating squirrels, it will survive for transplantation at least three times longer than human. 
tissue. And the part of it, why they can survive for longer time, because they're resistant to hypoxia and because they're resistant to cold. By understanding what kind of mechanisms they're switching on or they're switching off in order to obtain this phenotype, this can give us an idea how we can create organ banks in the future. Also, if you think about muscle dystrophy, for example, atrophy, these animals, they don't move for eight months. And when they wake up, they can move absolutely normal without showing any distress and discomfort. Mm, right. So nothing happens with their muscles as well. So no need for physical therapy for these animals. No need for physical therapy, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting what kind of mechanisms they're switching at this point as well so i can can tell a lot of applications like at the level of immune system for example they get rid of thrombocytes in order to prevent coagulation because they have very slow perfusion and how they're doing it then they restore it within a really short period of time they also get rid of leukocytes during hibernation Mm -hmm. uh, in order to prevent any kind of inflammation and protect themselves so what's happening no one knows so our research has a lot of applications to different at different levels. But at this moment, we are trying to stay focused and concentrate on cold sensitivity as well as on the regulation of core body temperature. Okay, and so last thing, just maybe you could give us a preview for your upcoming talk here at Stanford. So I explained already what hibernation means, right, in mammals. Right. And what we recently found, I'm, I'm going to talk about not cold, but heat. We also found that these animals, when they come out from hibernation, mm-hmm. they can overshoot the core body temperature temperature to 40 42 degrees celsius which is really really high so we will die at this temperature right 42 but they are not showing any signs of distress and discomfort and then we ask what's happened at the level of their nerve endings why they don't activate their own nerve endings by their own core body temperature mm-hmm. and we identified molecular mechanisms that they use for this phase called extreme thermogenesis and i'm going to talk about it we also found that one of the questions how they prevent the nervous system at such a low core body temperature and also low environmental temperature and we found mechanism that helps them to maintain the level of activity and then in the neurons by warming up locally neurons uh, during hibernation and during initial steps of arousal so this will be my two topics sounds like very cutting-edge research all right so usually the way we end these interviews is i give you a couple of rapid rapid fire questions so you can just answer very very quickly okay so the first question is um, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student back in Chicago what advice would you give to yourself Um, be be focused Mm. (laughs) (laughs) lots of interest (laughs) okay if you had to keep any of the animals that you've worked with um, in your studies as a pet which would you pick and what about an animal you haven't worked with yet uh, I would pick Syrian hamsters. <laughs> Seems intuitive. <laughs> Very cute. Yeah. And uh, which animal model I didn't walk on yet? We're actually planning to walk on woodchucks. This is the biggest oh. hibernator, not the biggest hibernators, but the biggest hibernators that we can put in our hibernaculum. So that's the plan, but we need more funding at this moment. All right, last question. So you've uh, worked in both San Francisco and Chicago. So what's your favorite spot in each city and which city has better food? Uh, in, uh, in Chicago, I really like downtown. Mm-hmm. And in San Francisco, I like Embercadera. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like more food in San Francisco, but as a graduate student, to be honest, I spend most of my time in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Thank you so much for speaking with us, Dr. Gertriva, and thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Kimberly Huber, a professor of neuroscience at UT Southwestern. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and myself. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk, as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org.